0: Today, we're starting a new series on the book of Esther. Book of Esther, Old Testament book of Esther. I'm going to go ahead and say if you've been out of church for a while, or maybe you've been in church, but your Bible doesn't have tabs, you might want to go ahead and start looking for it. It's a little bit difficult to find. If you open up kind of the middle of your Bible, you're going to find Psalms. And then if you turn left, you're going to find Esther. You're going to find the book of Job, or Job. All right? And then after Job, you're going to hit Esther. So before that, so anyway. In 1933, The population of Jews living in Europe was about 9 million. Most European Jews lived in countries that were eventually dominated or influenced by Nazi Germany. And by 1945, Hitler and the Third Reich, with their final solution to the Jewish question, had slaughtered 6 million Jews. 6 million people. Not only did they kill 6 million Jews, but they also killed handicapped. They they took out of the population Slavics and Poles and Gypsies and homosexuals. And by the end of 1945, people think anywhere between 11 To 17 million people, 11 to 17 million people were killed by a madman named Adolf Hitler. And 6 million of those were Jews. Two out of every three Jews were killed. You know, when we hear things of that, and we all know the history, I mean it happened 70 years ago... You know, you know, we just... Okay, right. But if you think this... Six million people. And you start asking yourself the question... Why? Why? I mean, not why, where is God, why? I mean... No. And we all know that people are evil. Not even that why. But why didn't people stand up? Why didn't people say... No, we're not going to do this. Why didn't people stand up and say enough is enough. You know, there were people who did s- stand up in Germany. We have heard their names. We've seen movies about Oscar Schindler. Or people like Pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Or uh, a Catholic priest by the name of Father Maximilian Cole. Some people have even heard of Corrie ten Boom and her story. For the most part, the people in Germany followed their Fuhrer over a cliff. They followed their leader like a lamb. Why? Why is that? Why, was, why were six million souls allowed to be killed? And nobody stood up. Or well, for the most part, nobody. Maybe, you know, and maybe we're thinking this, maybe it's because Germany just wasn't a Christian nation. Maybe um, they just didn't know the Bible. (laughs) Well, the facts prove contrary to that because Martin Luther was from Germany. The whole Protestant movement came from Germany. In fact, if you look at the demographic of of Germany at that time, most of the people there were Christians. They belonged to two main churches, the Lutheran Church and the Catholic Church. (laughs) And some people in the church stood up nothing. Why is that? Why is that? So many people, I think, treat other people's problems like, you know what, it's not my problem. I think we're apathetic, we're ambivalent, and we just we have this thing, you know, we're just not going to get involved. But hear me, no action is as bad as evil action. In, in, in deciding, in decisiveness... It's deciding, right? In fact, I want to throw this quote up on the the screen by Edmund Burke, and it says this. The only thing necessary for evil to win is for good people to do nothing. Were there good people in Germany? Yeah. There were. But many did nothing. Why is that? You know been to two Holocaust memorials. One was in Israel. It's called Yad Vashem. And I remember walking through there. The other one is the the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. Any of y'all been to any of those? Let me see your hands. Okay. You know, as I'm walking through these memorials, there's hundreds, maybe even thousands of people going through this at one time. But you could hear a pin drop. There is nobody joking. There isn't anybody running in the halls and laughing. I remember the thing that tore me up most when being in D.C. was seeing a room full of shoes. A room full of shoes that once belonged to women and to men and to children. These shoes at one time all had person inside of it. But now it's thrown in a room, discarded, almost up to the ceiling, of people that have been systematically exterminated, genocide, All because one person, one person chose to do nothing, and another person chose to do nothing, and then another person chose to do nothing. And the thing is, if one person would have stood up, If one person would have said no, if one person would have stood up, and then another would have stood up, and then another would have stood up, and then another would have stood up, up, six million people would not have died. And millions more who weren't Jews would not have died. Because it is the power of one. It is the power of influence when one person says stop. No. No more. What Hitler tried to do, killing out an entire race of people, God's people, the Jews, has been tried before. In fact, as we dig into this little small book of Esther, we're going to see another madman, not by the name of Hitler, but a a man by the name of Haman, who was so angry and so evil tried to wipe out God's people, the Jews. And what's going to be amazing is that we're going to see God's plan for rescuing His people. You know what God's plan was? You, know, you want to know what His first strain was of using a little 14-year-old Jewish girl who was out of her element, who had a, a terrible past, who had a lot of stuff in her background, God used a little teenage girl to be able to rescue his people from a holocaust. We're calling this series Become a Person of Influence. And if you're here today and you're like, Chris, you know, I've been out of church for a long time. And this is my first time back in church or I've never been to church before. And you're asking questions like, God, where are you? I, I don't know if even if there is a God. God um, I just I don't think you can use me some of you are here today and you 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 work you did go to church at one time and 20 years have passed and you, you just came back and you're thinking God can't use me I have run too far I've compromised too much I've given away too much and if that is your mindset I want to encourage you because this little book is saying that God will still use you. God can still use you. There is still hope for you because God wants to use you and you and you and me for his plan. I'm so excited about this. Man. If you're asking these questions like, you know, I just I'm not that influential. I can't influence anybody. I don't have any power. I can't influence somebody else. I can't even control my bad habits. I mean, anybody else feeling like that besides me like that? Okay, thanks for two of you being honest. Right? If you're feeling that way, no. This book is for us. Because God, we're gonna see, is in control. As we make our way through the first chapter. There's going to be some things that's going to surprise you. This book is called what? Okay. I'm just going to go ahead and say, we're going to look at this first chapter, and the writer is setting us up for Esther's entrance. Giving us the background for when she comes on the scene. And amazingly enough, this writer is setting the stage for a God who never seems to show up. A God who seems absent. A God that we can't find. Let's look at it. Esther chapter 1, verse 1. These events, these events happened in the days of King Xerxes, who reigned over 127 provinces, stretching from India to Ethiopia. At that time, Xerxes ruled the empire from his royal throne at the fortress of Susa. Let me give you some background. I've thrown out a lot of names. It's like I don't know any of those names. At the time, at this time, it's 483 B.C. All right? So this happened almost 500 years before Jesus comes on the scene. 483 B.C. And the known power of the world is Persia. Now, y'all don't know the country by the name of Persia today. You know it as a different country. Iran. So you see where I'm at? There is, just as we see that there's a madman trying to put people to death in Persia, not much has changed, has it? We see Iran, modern-day Iran, and the king of Persia at the time, his name is Xerxes. He is the most powerful man in the world. Everything is under his control. And we're going to see in this book... It doesn't matter where you're at or what country you're from or what country you're dealing with, that if God wants to get involved, nothing can keep him out. Not a dictatorship, not genocide, not apartheid, not prejudice. Uh, if, If you voted for Republicans, if you voted for Democrats, it really doesn't matter because God is in control. And if he wants to move Republicans, if he wants to move Democrats, or if he wants to move Independents, he can do it. Because God is in control. God was in control in 483 B.C. in a foreign country under a dictatorship, and God is still in control today. He is still, there's no place where if he sets his mind to, if he wants to come in and get involved in a government, nothing or no one or no party can keep him out. That should give us good news. Because that means God is in control. So, God, let me give you another, a little bit more background. 43 B.C. is when it happened. Now, God chose a people to be his own. They're named the Jews, or the Hebrews. And he gave them a... A, a land. And they called it what? Israel. Called it Israel. And God told the people he chose, listen, I'm giving you this land. And if you listen and obey me, and if you worship no other God but me, you worship the one true God. Don't worship all of these other gods and all of your countries surrounding you are worshiping. But if you worship me, then I'm going to bless you. And you're going to stay in the land. But if you worship other gods, then I am going to get involved and I am going to discipline you and I'm going to kick you out of the land. I'm going to boot you out and you're going to become foreigners and you're going to become captives. So in 1406, Joshua goes in with God's people, the Israelites, and they get the land. And exactly what God told them, hey, I'm warning you, is exactly what happened. Because they started worshiping every other God. They started worshiping this God and that God and all these little G-Gods. And ignored the big G-God, Yahweh, the God, the one true God. And God was patient. God said, okay, I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait, and hopefully they're going to turn themselves back to me. I'm going to wait, and I'm going to shower them with love. And when people come in and they start beating them up, I'm going to rescue them. I'm going to wait. And God waiting. God's patience is much longer than mine. Because for 800 years, God waited for the Jewish people to turn themselves, to turn back to God. But they never did. So God, always following through on his promises, even when it's to discipline us, he says, I'm going to raise up the Israel's enemy, the Babylonians, which is Iraq, modern day Iraq. And they're going to come in, and in 586 BC, they came and they wiped out Jerusalem, the capital of Israel. And they took back all of the people. All the the high-class people, the upper-class people, they took them back and they took them to Babylon. And for 70 years, God's people were foreigners and captives in a a faraway land, thousands of miles away. And they had no nation. They had no home. But God, because He's in control, He raises up another army, the Persians. And they come and they wipe out the Babylonians. And King Cyrus says, okay, Jewish people, the Israelites, y'all can go back home. Not only can y'all go back to Israel, but I'm going to give you money, I'm going to give you everything that you need to go back and rebuild your temple. That's amazing. So hundreds of thousands of Jews left captivity and bondage, and they went back to their homeland. You'd think, wow, that's great, right? And it was great. God is so patient. But amazingly enough, some Jews stayed behind. Some Jews didn't go back to their homeland. Some Jews became so compromised. They became so compromised that you couldn't even tell that they were Jewish anymore. In fact, if you took out the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, they couldn't even read their own language. They couldn't speak their own language. They couldn't listen to their own language because they had become more Persian than Jewish. They had become more ungodly than godly. And all throughout the Old Testament in some of these books, there's this longing. I can't wait to go back to Israel. I can't wait to go back home. In this book of Esther, you never do read that of that longing to go back home. And what's amazing about this is God chose to use a people who had compromised themselves so much that God chose to come down and say, I'm going to be you. And I'm going to use you. And that should give you and I encouragement today because I don't know if you feel how I feel sometimes, but I feel sometimes so messed up that I've run so far away from God that God can never use me. And this book says, yes, He can use us. He can totally use us. Because God is in control. God is in control. Now, that's where we're at. And we're going to keep on going. Just keep on digging. Verse 3 In the third year of his reign, whose reign? Xerxes' reign. Everybody say Xerxes? All right, go. He gave a banquet for all of his nobles and officials. He invited his military officers of Persia, as well as the princes and nobles of all the provinces. The celebration lasted 180 days. Now, somebody who's good at math, how long is 180 days? It's, not, it's a long time. Six months. He had a party for six months. What is the longest party you've ever been to? Somebody shout it out. Six hours? Okay. Anyone else? All day? All day? Okay, good. Six months? Three hours. Three hours? All right, very good. I mean, this dude threw a party for six months. Oh my gosh. So I want to keep on going here. I just want to put that in Now, why did he throw the party? Look at the end of this verse. This verse is very, very important. He threw the party, and the reason why is because it was a t- tremendous display. He was, gonna, he was trying to display something. A display of the opulent wealth of his empire, Xerxes Empire, and the pomp and splendor of Xerxes' Majesty. There was, that was the reason. He was, he was wanting to put his stuff on display. Alright? Very profitable person. A party that lasted for six months. Alright? I went to some long parties, never a party that lasted for a month, much less six, keep on going, verse 5, when it was all over, now imagine that, being the janitor for that party, right, when it was all over, the king gave a banquet for all the people, so he gives a party now for everybody, this is a party to close the party, alright, these are party people, right, So, he gives a banquet for all the people from the greatest to the least who are in the fortress of Susa. It lasted how long? Okay, let's talk about this. The longest party, somebody's been here six hours, right? This is a party for seven days. At the end, it's six months. That's amazing. All right? Now, I want you to listen to the detail that the writer of this gives describing this party. All right? The king gave a banquet for all the people that lasted for seven days and was held in the courtyard of the palace garden. Now, I want you to to think about all the detail here. Just picture it in your mind. The courtyard was beautifully decorated with white cotton curtains and blue hangings, which were fastened with white linen cords and purple ribbons from silver rings embedded in marble pillars. By the way, those marble pillars, in the Jewish commentary, those pillars are believed to have come from the temple in Jerusalem that the Jews worshipped at. Right? The gold and silver couches stood on a mosaic pavement of marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. You got that picture in your mind? I mean, what is the, the, the nicest place you've ever been to? Maybe the nicest hotel. What is the, the, the ni- nicest house you've ever been to? For me, it, it would probably have to be the Biltmore Mansion. I've been to the Biltmore I mean the Biltmore. Um, I paid like sixty bucks to go into the Biltmore. Um, actually, the truth be told, I think my folks paid sixty bucks for me to go to Biltmore. Um, but uh, but this this house created by Vanderbilt back in the turn of the, of the century of 1900 is just still just it's breathtaking, right? So that's the prettiest. That's the nice thing I've been to. But this the Biltmore I think would pale in, in comparison. Listen to how. All the drinks and all the stuff. The drinks were served in gold goblets of many designs. And there was abundance of royal wine, reflecting the king's generosity. By edict of the king, no limits were placed on the drinking. So it was an open bar, right? For the king had instructed all his palace officials to serve uh, each man as much as he wanted. Xerxes' rule about drinking was that there was no rule, right? Imagine. A room full of guys, because this is only the men. A room full of guys who've been drunk for seven days. Imagine the smell. Okay, I want to put you there now. Imagine how how disheveled everything is. In fact, some of them have been not only drunk for seven days, they've been drunk for six months. Alright? Talking about waking up and not losing just a day of your life. What happened? I started drinking in January, and it's July, right? All right, seven days straight. Now, look at this. While Xerxes is throwing a party, a seven-day-long party for the men, his queen, her name is Vashti. Everybody say that word, Vashti. right her, her, his queen is out, and she's giving a party for all the women. She's trying to support her husband. She's trying to follow her husband's lead. Right? At the same time, verse 9, King Vashti gave a banquet for all the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day of the feast, when King Xerxes was in high spirits, why? <laughs> because of the wine, All right. He told his servants who attended him to bring Queen Vashti to him with the royal crown on her head. He wanted all the nobles and all the other men to gaze on her beauty, for she was, very, she was a very beautiful woman. Now, what, what was the point of King Xerxes' six-month party? You remember back in verse 4? Let's look at it. Verse 4, to display what? His wealth and his pomp and splendor and his majesty. That's the reason for the party. But you know what? All that six-month, he displayed a lot of stuff, but there was still one more prize that he wanted to display. And that was his trophy wife. Now, I don't know if any of you ladies in here, you ever felt like that you are the trophy wife. That you feel like that you're the little woman beside your man and he only sees you as a pound of flesh. Again, I don't know if that's how any of you have felt in here, but that is exactly how Queen Vashti felt in here. And let, let me just say by saying this, that's not, um, you are more than just a trophy wife. God sees you as more. You're more than just a conquest. If that's the way you see yourself, and if that's the way uh, the man in your life sees you, you need to know that God sees you as so much more. So Queen Vashti, being the trophy wife, <laughs> King Xerxes says, Okay, come out of here, because you're so goo goo so go goo I want everybody to see how beautiful you are. Uh, come on, I want to show how good you look, because you're going to make me look good. All right. And by the way, this is all in front of a bunch of drunk men. Let's put it that that perspective. Ladies, would you want to go? Would you want to go to a party where guys have been drinking for seven days or six months, and you show up, and you're the only woman in the room? Probably not. Right? Now, look at this. Verse 12. But when, the, when they conveyed the king's orders to Queen Vashti, hey, come on, she refused to come, and this made the king furious, and he burned with anger. Uh-oh, party's over. The king's ticked. The queen's ticked. All right? And there's problems in happy, happily ever after land. All right? Look at this, verse 13. He immediately consulted with his wise advisors, who knew all the Persian laws and customs, for he always asked their advice. What should be done to Queen Vashti, the king demanded? What does the penalty of the law provide for a queen to refuse to obey the king's people? I mean, this wounded lion of a king, he gets all of his guy friends together and says, Hey, guys, what do you, what do you think I should do? Right? This one woman won't respect me, right? And the dumb guys, I mean, you've probably never ever done anything like that, right? Mm-hmm. All right? Verse 19. One of the king's advisors, his name is Memukin. almost sounds like Metamucil, but it's not... <laughs> If you can answer so if it pleases the king, we suggest that you issue a written decree, a law of the Persians and the Medes that cannot be revoked. Now this is important, because whatever law the king says, if he puts it out there, nobody can revoke it. No one can revoke it, the law. It should order that Queen Vashti be forever banished from the presence of King Xerxes, and that the king should choose another queen more worthy of. And she. And in chapter two, we're going to see that Queen Xerxes is going to give a beauty pageant, trying to find another queen. And that's where chapter one ends. Now, that's just where we're going to end it today. Now, this is what's so weird. W- what is this book called? Have we seen Esther's name mentioned any? No. We're, we're there's ten chapters in this book. That we're all the way through the first chapter, and Esther is never mentioned. Now, I just want to say this. That seems a little strange, but it's even going to get stranger. Because up to this point, have you seen God's name mentioned? Now, this is where I want to camp out on for the rest of the day. The the five, six minutes I got left from you is this. We've not seen Queen Esther's name mentioned, but it's coming in chapter 2. We are never going to see God's name mentioned in this book of Esther. God's name is never brought up. You're not going to see any references to God in this book. You're not going to see any references of doing even anything religious in this book. There's no praying in this book. We're not going to see any miracles in this book. So some of you are going, "Uh, Preacher, why are we studying this book? (laughs) That's a great question. We're studying this book for two reasons. Number one, it's in the Bible. And number two, Don't mistake God's name not being in it with God's name not being all over it. You see, we may miss God on the page. God may not be on the page in the book of Esther, but his fingerprints are all over the book. We're going to see God working behind the scenes in such a way that even though his name is not mentioned, even though no miracles are ever ever happened, that God is working behind the scenes. And this is where I want to lay. I mean, all we see is a six-month drunk fast. Where is God in all of that? And some of you, that's what you're asking yourself right now. Where is God in all of my circumstances? I want to say this. There is much to learn about, about God by about where He doesn't make Himself obvious as where He does make Himself obvious. There is as much to learn about where God, where you can't find God, where you can't see God, where you can't hear God. There's much to learn during those times as there is as when God makes himself very obvious, like when he parts the Red Sea in that grand miracle. You see, all of us, we pray for miracles. We want to see God do something miraculous in our life. And you know what? I believe God can still use miracles. But what happens when God doesn't use the miracles? What happens when we pray like the Israelites and the Red Sea doesn't open? What happens when we can't see God in the miraculous? But the only way, only places, we're not really even seeing Him at all, but if He is, it's in the small little details, the mundane parts of our life. Because I want to suggest to you and me today that the the author who wrote the book of Esther did so in such a way that he's not blatantly obvious in the miraculous But he's all over the mundane. And maybe there's no greater miracle than God walking through the mundane, ordinary details of your life. And of my life. You see, it's easy to believe in a God who can raise people from the dead. It's easy to believe in a God... Who can bring out on fire from heaven. It's easy to believe in a God when Moses is at the Red Sea and he goes like this and the sea goes like that. That's easy. But where we're landing today is what happens to your faith when you pray for the miracles and the miracles don't show up. What happens to your faith when you search for God? find him. Our big idea today is this. Even when you can't see God, even when you can't find God, even when you can't hear God, choose to trust him. Choose to trust him. He may not be, you can't find the miracle, but he's in the mundane. He's in the ordinary. And if you can't find him on those big things, look in the small things this: when you cannot find him in the miraculous, you know that he's there, you know he's behind the scenes, you know that he's working, and he's going to show up. Anybody lost God recently? Anybody just feel like, you know what, I just can't find you, God. I'm, I have been there. I have totally been there. And i got to be honest with you, there's parts of me that are there right now that you're like, God, I'm wanting to hear your voice. See you at work. But there's silence. I can't find it. And I'm still reading God's word. I'm still praying. But I can't find it. I can't find it at all. The book of Esther proves to us that there's no such thing as God being. See, some of you, you feel like God has left you. But your feelings are not facts. God's word is truth. Your feelings are not truth. Let me tell you what Psalms 139 7 says I can never escape from your spirit. Everybody say the word never. I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. Or be out of your sight. If I go up to heaven, you're there. And see, we all know that. Okay, Jesus is in heaven. Okay, I know He's in heaven. If you go down to the grave, He's there as well. See, that's harder to notice God there. If I ride the wings of the morning, if I dwell by the farthest oceans, you find me in a minute. You are already there waiting. He is everywhere. He is in every decision. He's in every circumstance. God is never absent. God is always behind the scenes. God is the unseen God who makes himself known in the events of everyday life in history. Not just the big parts of history, but the history of your history right now. Of Sunday in February on a beautiful day. He Sometimes he comes in and he intervenes with miracles. And sometimes he just comes in and he intervenes in the mundane and in the ordinary events. And we're going to find out that God used a beauty pageant for his plan so that he could put a little girl in place to influence, protecting an entire race of people. He used a beauty pageant. Right? A beauty pageant? I mean, y'all seen toddlers and tiaras? Right? He used that. Yes. Yes. Because there's nothing mundane or ordinary that God can't use. And if you're mundane, if you're ordinary, if you've compromised, God can use you. He can totally use you. Man, I like that. He's not appearing on the page by name or by purpose because he's got lessons to teach us about when we can't find him. I just want to say coincidence. You know, sometimes we say, well, that was just coincidence. Or God does something with coincidence. Well, let me tell you, coincidences are miracles in which God prefers to remain anonymous. Because there is no such thing as coincidences. Faith is putting God in every fill in the blank. Nothing happens to me by coincidence. God is involved in everything, even when I can't see the evidence. In fact, the last verse I want to show you, Ephesians one eleven. God works out Everything. Everybody said the word everything. Now, does everything mean everything? Does that mean that stuff that's happened in your past? Does that mean when you can't pay the bills this month, God works out everything in conformity with the purposes of His will. What seems like a coincidence is really God working behind the scenes in in the mundane and not in the miraculous. You've wondered where's God in my life right now. That's exactly where the book of Esther is at. You know, I've, I've asked myself that question because I've been in this book for about four months now. Just studying it and reading it and reading it and reading it and reading it. And I've felt so close to God. I've learned so much already that I can't wait to just talk with you guys about it. It's going to be life-changing stuff. I've learned so much about this book. But this week has been such a struggle for me. Because I've, I've strained to hear God's voice. And I want to see God at work. And and I feel like this week, I just feel like there's just been silence. What happens when there's just silence? What happens when God doesn't make himself obvious? What happens? All of us experience this from time to time where I don't feel like he's close, or I don't feel like he's listening, or I don't feel like he's in my circumstances, and if you've if you can't find God in your circumstances, if you can't find God in in, in, in all the stuff that's happening in your life, if you have lost God in deployments, if you've lost God in family, if you've lost God in church, if you've lost God with how you're dealing with your children or with your spouse or on the job, if you've lost God in any of those places, know that God has not lost you. He still knows where you work. He still knows that you're married to that guy or that girl. He still knows that you're not married at all and that you want to be married. He still knows that your children have ran away from home. He still knows that your children are there. He knows exactly where you're at. And as we end today, know this, that when you can't find God, when you can't see God, what's going to happen is he's getting ready to make a grand entrance. There's been time in life when I feel like I've lost God or I can't hear God. And it's during those times that I go, when God finally does show up and make himself obvious, I realize he's been there the entire time. (laughs) And I feel so close to him in this time. Come on, answer a couple of your questions. How can you tell God's voice from others? That's a great question. How I tell God's voice from others is really this, this book here. I believe this book is what he wants us to do. Now, the, the, the struggle we have with this is this gives us some really good details, but it doesn't give us every detail, right? When you ask, okay, God, should I get out of the army or should I stay in? God, should I, um, what should I do in dealing with my, and you just put it in the blank. Sometimes it doesn't give us the details that we want. So the first thing I would say, how can you tell God's words from others, is you read this book. That's the first thing. And then outside of that, you surround yourself with other godly people. You pray. And a lot of times, God uses something inside of us if we are a Christ follower. He gives us His Spirit, and He gives us a peace. Uh, Many times, He uses my spouse. A lot of times, my spouse's voice sounds like God's voice sometimes. Anybody else? Uh, I'll tell you how it works for me as well. You know, God surrounds me with some godly people. I, I, I'm in a community group that I, I so love these guys and these ladies. And those, when I can't hear God's voice, sometimes I'm able to hang out with them. And where I feel like God's been silent with me, he's, he's, he's speaking to somebody else. And I'm like, okay, okay, that helped, that helped me. So that's one of the ways that I can tell God's voice from others. But know this, one of the easiest ways is if other people are saying, hey, you need to divorce her. You need to know that's not God's voice. Because God will never contradict his Word, So we've got to be careful who we're going to listen to. Because who we listen to is going to direct our life. We've got to listen to godly people. How can you find God? That's a great question. (coughs) The best way you can find God. Well, know this. God knows exactly where you're at. He made you. Not only did he make you. He he made you so that you can have a relationship with Him. That the only way that we can have a relationship with Him is when we ask Jesus Christ, Jesus, to forgive us of all the stuff in our life, all the mess. The Bible calls it sin. Because sin comes in between us and God. And we feel that separation many times. So what we do is we come... To Jesus, and we ask Him, we pray that He would be our, our Savior. Lord, you would just cleanse us, and that and, and, uh, uh, You would just take all of that stuff and you would just cover it up. That's how we can find God. That's the best way. That's the only way, the Bible says. That the only way somebody can get to heaven to find God is through Jesus Christ. And that is the only way. So that is how you find God. I don't know where you're at. I don't know what you're feeling between your relationship with God right now. You may feel like you've lost him. You may not be able to find God in in the pages of your life right now. But know that he is not absent. He is there. And he's wanting you to trust him. And when he shows up, wow, he's going to show up. So stay close to him. Dear Jesus, we thank you so much, God, for just giving us your word. Giving us a book like Esther and how strange it is, God, that we're never going to really read of your name in, in, in this book. and it, it, We're not going to read about miracles or people praying or anything like that, God. But yet you're still behind the scenes. You're still working in everything. You're working out your plan. And little things that we call coincidences. and big things that we call miracles, but you're in them all. You're in it all. You're in it everywhere. Everything. Every decision. Every choice. Every circumstance. You use for your plan. It's in Jesus' name that we.